Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Collective Whisper podcast. We're glad you could join us today, and we have an amazing guest on the show. But as usual, before we get into that, we'd just like to remind you, please subscribe to the show, please follow, please share, and we hope you're enjoying the content on this season three. Still here, going strong, going to get better. Okay, so this week we're going to talk to Mickey Joe Hart. Mickey Joe Hart has been a mainstay of the Irish roots and popular music scene for more than 15 years. He has multiple platinum records to his credit, including number ones and many top 20 hits on the Irish charts. Back in 2003, he represented Ireland in the Eurovision Song Contest with We've Got the World and placed 11th and reached number one on the Irish single chart. The single releases of Come Gather All and Bring It On, Bring It On exhibit two recent writing collaborations with internationally acclaimed Irish songwriter Paul Brady. Mickey is currently recording new material in Germany with producer Dieter Kirchenbauer, which consists of mainly original songs including Audience Favourites for the Broken Hearted and Fire in My Heart and interpretations of Luca Bloom's contemporary Irish folk song City of Chicago. Past compositions include theme tunes for RTE TV programmes including Lords of the Ring and Brian and Pippa Get Married. He was also featured as a vocalist on the hit dance series Let's Dance 2016 for RTL in Germany. Mickey also hosts and performs on the Writer Series, an in-the-round concept with two very special guest artists on selected dates at Raft's on the Corner. Guests include Duke Special, John Spillane, Elner McAvoy, the four of us, Mick Hanley, Nick Kelly, Leo Moran from the Saw Doctors, Anto Thistlewade from the Waterboys, to name a few. Mickey Joe Hart is back with a new single, Derry Girl, his first in three years, and is currently working on pre-production for his next album. Derry Girl is released across all digital platforms through Swerve Music Limited. This is the first single Mickey's released in three years following his last long play record, Me Too, released in 2018. Derry Girl was recorded in Attica Studios with producer-engineer Tommy McLaughlin and mastered in London with John Davis. This upbeat single tells the story of dating a girl from the wrong side of town, religion or beliefs shouldn't matter when it's love. Best known for his single We've Got the World released in 2003, Mickey Joe has gone on to tour the US, Australia, Europe and Dubai, making a career in a business that few have the opportunity to stay in. Mickey has played thousands of concerts with his band and solo and has retained a loyal audience across the globe. His voice has become familiar to the 3 million weekly audience on German RTL show Let's Dance that tune in each week as Mickey Joe sings versions of Metallica, Peter Gabriel to alternative indie swing versions of 21 Pilots' Stress Out. Outside of his recording and touring, Mickey Joe has been working on a local project, Music to Your Ears, for men bringing them together through music and tackling isolation and loneliness. They have now put on over nine shows in the north of Ireland celebrating the talents of It's Never Too Late to Take Up Music. Welcome to the show, Mickey Joe. Okay, Mickey Joe Hart, welcome to the Collective Whisper podcast. Lovely to be here eventually, Simon. You know, sometimes to get great guests, you have to wait a while because of their schedule and everyone's schedule so just keep knocking at the door someone will answer eventually you say all the right things <laughs> <laughs> so mickey joe it's an exciting time for you at the moment because you have your new single jerry girl out which i think is getting great reviews and it's a lovely single yeah it's doing well it's it's just you know it's lovely to have something out at the minute uh again simon's just been you know the covid thing wiped us out so it's just nice to have music on the go again and be out gigging and traveling and, uh, you know, getting in the car and going to gigs and doing sound checks and going to radio studios and singing the song and 
hearing it played back and doing some phoners and on some today from here as well uh, for a couple of different stations. Um, so um, nationwide, like so, it's just it's just it's um, it's just nice to have stuff out and uh, yeah, so it's going okay. So the feedback's good as as is with everything. You know, airplay is getting more and more difficult to get, and uh, so. If a station embraces the song and embraces, you know, and sticks it on the playlist or whatever, then that's, you know, it's it's just really nice. So um, it's going okay, you know, it's going okay, thank God. Yeah. Do you plan to kind of tour just nationwide, or are you planning on doing any like, you know, German English tours, or will that be later when an album comes out? I'll probably do a proper tour, if you know what I mean, when the album's out, uh, which is going to be next year. But I'm I'm always gigging, if you know what I mean. Pretty much, I was just back from England there last night, so. Um, and then, you know, plans to go to Germany in early New Year again. Um, we had to put off a last little tour I had, um, but that was okay. It was just um, uh, we over, we messed up a few dates <laughs> my, on my end because of my holidays. I mixed it up. But anyway, uh, so that, that'll go, I'll go back there then um, uh, in the New Year. I'm just actually chatting to my producer today, Dieter, over there. And so we're we're working on another few songs and on one in particular. So um, yeah, you know, just doing that. I'm just, I'm just trying to get uh, an album done and 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 out. I have a lot of, a lot of new songs, and I just I'm just trying to get that done. And um, yeah, so next year, you know, hopefully we'll do a tour off the back of that. That'll be cool. So before we get into the present and the future, let's go back a little bit into the past. So. You're from Lifford, and, and I know Lifford because I lived in Letterkenny for a couple of years, and I, I was working up there as a carpenter, and I was driving all over the rally roads, you know, uh, Lifford, Stranord, or all these places, fitting kitchens, and I know all up, I know, that it's been years since I've been up there, but I know the country pretty well, and obviously Creasler has been in the news recently with the tragic events, but Donegal is a lovely place and Lifford's a great place too. I mean, the county's gorgeous. I mean, I, growing up, we had kind of the best of both worlds because my, my mom was from a, a place called Downings, which is right out on the coast. Lovely um, beach. Yeah, gorgeous beach. And we uh, still, uh, thankfully, have uh, the place there. So we use that a lot. And um, I uh, we, and then Lifford was, you know, a sort of a different world growing up. You know, it was so close to the border and so close to Strabad. To Tyrone, that um, you know, it was a growing up in the you know eighties and the nineties and all that, uh, being a teenager and that kind of you know into your twenties and that kind of turbulent time. But you know, seen a lot of uh, action. You know, a lot of things that were uh, you know that was it was a it was a tough place sometimes. But we had that up. You know, that we had it was good that we were able to sort of use. Donegal or Downings as a kind of a, a bit of a, a escape for us as well you know it was nice but I mean Lifford was it was fantastic growing up there was a great sense of community and you know um, it, 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 the troubles it, although it's only now looking back we didn't really I didn't really you don't realize how how they affected you but at the time as a kid you just thought it was just something that was going on in the background you know it was noise sort of thing and you were just getting on with being a kid and you growing up and doing all the things that you do as a teenager and all them you know uh, and then occasionally there would be these, um, you know, terrible things that would happen in the north and, you know, and in and, 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 and the town and Strabane and this like that. Uh, and just, uh, it was it was part of life, unfortunately. It was, and it was kind of accepted it that way and which was um, quite bizarre in itself, you know, but colourful sort of 
colorful <laughs> place to live. I can imagine, you know, being a young guy there starting to play music, you obviously, tragically, sometimes you get inspiration from that kind of thing as well. But one thing that was quite interesting for me was your first song, Candlelight. So it said it was inspired by Operation Desert Storm. So even though you had all these things happening around you, yeah. you kind of were looking further ashore as well at their troubles, weren't you? That's bizarre. You know, I know I, 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 you, you've definitely done your research. That's going back to when I was very, that's going to be one of the first songs I ever wrote. But when I had it on a little recording, um, four track recording thing, but we did at the time an EP or whatever, but on a cassette of all things. <laughs> <laughs> Showing they were my, the days. <laughs> showing my age now, I'll tell you, Simon. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was just it, it was the first time that I'd seen war as such. You know, I know we lived in a war zone and, yes. and such, but it was it was a different kind of war, you know, because you know the the war that was in the north was a kind of a guerrilla warfare, you know, and you didn't really see it. You know, it's bizarre. You you, you seen all the the accru- the accoutrements of of war, you know the 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 British, you know, the, the soldiers and the big, you know, the, the the army barracks that they would have had and the barbed wire and all the stuff that was on and, you know, the tanks and the helicopters. You've seen that part of it, but you never really seen the violence sort of happened in the dark of nights or something, you know, and, and, and you know, in and, and, and different ways and, you know, with car bombs and it was kind of a guerrilla warfare. So the North was a different thing, but, but to actually see the first time like a war starting you know the start of this war it was all on tv of course you know it was the first time i suppose they were able to and it was just like as a kid it was, it was quite frightening you know um i just remember being being frightened by it i think that's what kind of inspired me to write it you know it was just out of that that fear of like jesus you know was the world coming to an end is this the start of you know the escalation of world war three or something I, I imagine you're seeing things from another perspective because we can get a little kind of seasoned to what's happening around us. And as you say, oh, well, it is a, it's a war, but it's a war of sorts. Yeah. You know? and, but you can look at the television and you see the media sensationalism and those wars in other countries always seem much bigger, don't they? And yeah. I remember all of that desert storm and everything. It was all big news at the time. Uh, but yet, for I suppose for people in other countries, they were looking at Ireland and thinking big news there, but still kind of, bombings isn't it different type there's a different type of war i suppose or you know i mean if there is a different type of war but you know it was certainly you know on on, on the um the visual side of it or whatever you know as a melody it's just a different type of thing when you see it in in um you know full technicolor you know <laughs> happening starting and sort of this initiation of the war that george bush you know and tony blair and them sort of you know done all their whatever they did to initiate that and you know and uh it was <laughs> it was quite bizarre as a kid seeing it all kind of come together it was like you know um uh the realization that you know i, I think it was just fear you know maybe this sort of this all the talk of world war three and you know do you think you know for lots of musicians around that area and then maybe people are kind of inspired to write about it, but then other people are saying, well, I don't want to write about that. I want to write about other stuff, about love. I want to write about, you know, being a child and not have to focus on tragedy. So for you, I suppose, you kind of, your songwriting kind of delved into like that style, like the undertones and that kind of teenage angst and teenage love. 
and you you stayed away from politics a little, didn't you? Yeah, I did. You know, it was just you know, I just I was writing those songs, yeah, absolutely about love and you know all the things that you know, all these things that teenagers write about and you know things that are important to them at that particular time. And um, so yeah, I mean, you know the the songs that I would have been listening, like, you know, the likes of maybe Paul Brady, The Island, and stuff like that, which was an amazing song about about not the north and. And through the barricades was another song that I absolutely loved from Spandau Ballet. You know, and they they kind of summed it up. Um, but I wasn't writing those type of songs at that particular time. You know, and maybe since I've written songs in that vein, but um, then I was too young to, I suppose, uh, have that much to say. <laughs> For you, then, you know, obviously, when you started getting into the music scene, and before, you know, you went and you were looking at. Um, like enter in any of the talent competitions or you're a star. So for you, you, you had a bit of a challenge because you were looking at obviously all of the boy bands and the scene at the time and maybe trying to find your place in it. So how did you kind of say, well, this is what I'm going to try and do? Or was it a process that you just didn't know what was going to happen when you went down that road? No, I hadn't a clue really. You know, um, see, I grew up uh, like, we probably grew up around the same time or whatever. Yeah. There was a sort of, you know, a great era of rock bands, 80s and 90s and stuff. And um, there was a process of getting, you know, your song on the radio yeah. and trying to get a sign by a label or whatever, you know, that kind of, that was the, that was the target, you know, the, um, that you were kind of striving for to get to that level where you might pick up a record deal or whatever. Um, and, so by the time when the boy band thing started to kick in, when Louis started to work his magic, and 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 you know that whole thing started to pile, there there came a crossroads then for a lot of people because it kind of confused you, but confused the the market, and it confused us because you know ultimately what you were trying to do is get your band together, get your song together, get to Dublin and get into the bag and in and places like that, and kind of try and play and for record labels and see if you could get an A&R man interested and give you a record team. That was, and then this kind of format changed. Then, you know, there was boy bands. There was this thing, oh, wow, you can actually kind of manipulate, you know, and put a band together and, you know, kind of, you know, manipulate the markets a wee bit hard. But that type of thing, oh, there's a different way you can, you know, you can kind of formalize this or whatever. And uh, so that kind of confused people and changed. And then out of that came, you know, talent shows, TV talent shows. Now, TV talent shows were around for a long time, but in the, in this particular format, be it, um, you know, Eurostar in particular and those things. But, you know, there was other ones then, you know, pre that in UK. And then after that, then the big guns came in, the X Factors and stuff, and it just, boom, shot it completely out of the water, you know, brought it to a different level of, uh, so this is the way you, you now you get discovered, you know, it's it's uh, it's not, you know, hanging out in the bag of them, you know, although there were still people around, but record deals were becoming uh, less, um, there weren't as many of them around, <laughs> let's just say, and it was, it was just harder to get, but, you know, if you could get on TV and uh, maybe won a competition like X Factor or something, there's a chance you might get a deal out of that. For sure. It changed at that particular kind of juncture in my life, and uh, I was, I suppose, lucky enough in one way that um, I ended up kind of by mistake on Eurostar, not mistake, but, you know, I wasn't intending and the next thing I was there and I tried it out and, it, well, you know, I ended up winning it and I got a deal out of that from Sony and 
So, but it wasn't a kind of a conscious decision that I was going to, you know, go down the competition, the TV talent show route. But it happened that way, and uh, you know, people would give the right arm to, you know, have have that. So I, I would I wouldn't knock it. You know, I was very lucky to be able to get a deal with Sony at the end of it, and you know, do an album in, in, in London with John Kelly from Past Producer and all that kind of things that happened off the back of that. So, um, you know. You know, I, I've had Lucy Evans on the show and she talked about her Eurostar experience and everything. And I think for uh, for people who go through through those, there's at the end of it all, there's good and bad things and there's roads maybe they wouldn't have chosen, but maybe it led them to better things. So maybe after a few years, that artist evaluated mm. their career and says, okay, am I where I thought I'd be? And if I didn't have that competition, would I be here at all? So you have to kind of take the good with the bad sometimes with these things, don't you? That's it, you know. But, you know, it's the same. Um, I mean, the process of the, the business is the same for everybody. You know, all the stuff that goes on with record companies and, you know, the touring and all the aspects of that, all the shit that happens and all the good stuff and the bad stuff, that aspect has never really changed. What has changed is the way that people get discovered you know, so, you know, whether it's on a TV talent show or whether it's because you're becoming the next, you know, the recent YouTube sensation or whatever it might be, or because you happen to be seen in a gig by an NR guy from a record label, which is kind of nearly unheard of nowadays. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, the A&R guys are sitting down in front of the computers and looking at the... Uh, the amount of clicks or you know likes that you know somebody has on a particular song, and that's how they're making their decisions now. A lot of them sort of uh, on you know on the screen and sort of saying, "Oh, that, this is a great following. This guy has, or this girl has, you know, or this band has, you know, developed this kind of online presence." And and then they say, "Well, okay, let's sign them. Let's try to see that." But that was that now that sort of old where you would have got into the likes of the bag and the Dublin places like that or wherever it might be, uh, to do a gig and hope that there'd be A&R men in the, in the room. It's just, you know, it has just kind of trans, tra transcended onto a TV screen now where that's where you get discovered, you know. So once you get signed, you still have all the stuff to deal with. You still have to do the reading. You still have to get back and airplay. You still have to get out there and tour. You still have to, you know, figure out, you know, how to do all the online stuff. You still have to figure out, you know, all the other stuff is the same. Just the way of getting discovered has changed. You know, in your beginning of that journey of Eurostar, how soon into the process did you kind of know that it would be going towards your vision? Because, you know, I can imagine for some people, they're in that competition and then they want to do their own songs or some people want to sing cover songs and so on. So maybe in those competitions, you don't always get the say because the producers and the, whoever is involved in the whole running of the show is saying, well, we think this is a better way for you to go. And I'm sure even there's some people who probably were thinking, oh, I don't know if I want to do Eurovision. And some people love the chance. So when did you kind of know that it would be heading towards Eurovision if you won? I had this talk with Ray Darcy last week on the radio. <laughs> and, uh, he presented the show. Okay. You're the star. So obviously he knew a lot about it. Um, and it to me, I didn't realize until maybe halfway through the competition, because I can remember it very vividly. We were backstage in the in the Helix where it was all filmed. And somebody came in on the Sunday evening and sort of said something about you know, the winners going to Eurovision. And I remember going, What's that? And so yeah, well, whoever wins this competition goes to Eurovision. I genuinely had no idea that that was part of the prize at all. 
Uh, I thought it was something that was introduced by RTE because of the popularity of Eurostar, because it kind of took the nation by storm, as it were, you know, because it was an unknown entity at that time. Eurostar, when it started out that year, nobody knew what it was, the TV talent show, and they saying it just, boom, it went ferociously mad. And um, I thought, well, that's clever of RTE. They thought, sort of thought, well, yeah, whoever won this competition, people are going to know them, it's going to connect. The Eurovision with the country again, and maybe start a kind of a a, a regeneration of you know um, uh, for you know a connection with Eurovision again because it lost touch with it. Ireland, although you know it won it seven times or whatever it was, there wasn't that much connection with the young people. And I thought, oh, that's really clever of them. But subsequently, subsequently, I've discovered that it was actually. Uh, something that was there from the start that apparently was part of the prize from the start. I didn't know it. And Radar as well, he said it was a play on words, the Eurostar thing, you know, and uh, Eurovision. So I went, oh yeah, it only took me 20 years yeah. to, to figure that out. So, um, <laughs> But no, I genuinely didn't know it was and uh, I don't yeah, know if that would have changed my view. Maybe it would have, you know, because it wouldn't have been something that it would have been on my radar to be going certain uh uh, looking for was a, a Eurovision. Was your perception of the Eurovision before you got into the whole process was it completely different? Uh, oh, it's weird. I mean, growing up in the eighties, um, it was huge because Johnny Logan was, you know, done so well, and and Ireland in general did so well. But uh, I remember, you know, what's another year? Still, probably my favorite Eurovision song, Shay Healy. Uh, written by Shay and performed by Johnny Logan. And and then when he went, I remember, you know, sitting down with my family. My father used to be a big fan. He used to love watching it. So I remember sitting down watching, you know, when they won them with uh, Hold Me Now. So, so, I mean, it was really good, great memories. And then I think I just lost, I think we as a nation lost touch with it a bit, you know. When they brought Dustin on. <laughs> yeah, well, even before, way before that, you know, I think we had lost touch with that. You know, we've just lost touch with it in general. It, it yeah, yeah. After Johnny and a few of the others, and rock and roll kids maybe and stuff, that was the end of our, you know, kind of, I don't know what happened, but kind of lost, I think the nation lost a bit of touch, uh, touch I don't know. Or we got a bit complacent about it or something like that. You know, that we could, you know, sort of, yeah, well, we, we've won it more than anybody else. And it's probably the only thing that we've won more than anything else in a nation. But, <laughs> Is that a lot of pressure there? Then for you going into the Eurovision, because you know you're thinking, oh, because you know it was a great song, and I'm sure you know you have that pressure on your shoulders of looking at Charlie McGezigan and Paul Harrington and you know Johnny Logan and Linda Martin and all these winners, yeah. and it's it's quite a lot of pressure, isn't it, to have because yeah. you have a good song, and then people are expecting more then because. You know, like the honest conversation people have in bars and at home about Eurovision, they go, oh, that's a terrible song this year. Or that's actually a good song. Now that could win it, you know. And then there's more pressure if the song is good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But well, the expectations were big for me because the yeah. song, everybody knew the song and the song was number one before I left Ireland, you know, and that was the problem because when I got there, then everybody thought, well, of course we're going to win, you know, because <laughs> the song's number one in Ireland. So, but that's not how it works, as you know, but um, because all of the songs have their own audience in their own country and, you know, their own song. But, you know, it was such a big thing here, that song. And, you know, I think people expected it to win. And when you get there, then you start to believe the publicity a wee bit because people are saying, oh, you know, it's one of the favorites. And, you know, then you get caught up in that whole, 
uh, you know, Jesus, maybe we have a chance, you know, that type of thing. Ultimately, yeah, it, it was, I was just hugely disappointed when it didn't do, you know, when we didn't win or even do better than that. But yeah, but but I, I think it did. I think it did well, and it's kind of like the Premiership or the Champions League. It's very hard to win both of them. But I think the fact that you had a number one before you left, you know, it took some of the pressure off. But it would have been like, a, you know, not a hat trick, but it would have been the double if you had got the Eurovision win as yeah. well. But I think, you know, looking back, that song and that whole <laughs> performance and the Eurovision time, it did really well for you just in that moment, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, I was just hugely disappointed myself because I felt like I, let, I felt my performance wasn't good on the night, uh, to be honest. I didn't quite nail it. Uh, and I think that was just a long week. <laughs> and that's not to make excuses. I've had longer weeks and I've been on tour longer and things again. But I, I just felt, I felt myself that, you know, I just didn't connect with the TV audience. I didn't quite nail it, you know, like the way I did at Eurostar, for example. So I don't know, though, because I was re-watching it. I remember sitting in a pub in Tume in County Galway watching it when it was on that night. Um, and actually, I think I was playing in Canavan's Bar. I was playing the gig there. And then, we stopped for the Eurovision. <laughs> I know it well. <laughs> not Canavan's and Belclair, the other one in the town. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not said your brother's local. Yeah, not I remember Belcher. that performance. Yes. But I was looking at there this week at your performance again. And one thing I thought you were very natural on stage. And one thing I thought was cool was the backing singers. You, you kept looking at them. You were looking at them as if like in, engaging them. And I thought that was good because oh, it kind yeah, of felt yeah. like you were including them because obviously they're yeah. sitting with you but I, I thought that was cool as well and I, th I thought you sang pretty well yeah it was okay I mean it was just a couple of things I didn't quite I, you know it, it's, it's not really sometimes about the singing or nailing it too well you know it's just about the connection you know if you can connect I just felt maybe I, I connected better on Eurostar the final you know with the song or something like that I don't know and maybe it was newer to me and it was fresher and by the time I'd come to the end of the Eurovision I'd sang it so much and you rehearsed so much that week out of Eurovision. Maybe I was a wee bit just, uh, you know, tired of it or something happened. I don't know. And it's a long week and you're doing a lot of interviews, doing all things. thing. I think my voice was out, tired and all those kind of things. Not an excuse, but I, I just my own sort of, um, when I look back and I think about it now, that's just, that's just my own, you know, uh, way of sort of uh, trying to figure out. Because, uh, you know, I think it's not it's not bad to try and, evaluate these things. You I know, think for what you did, thing, it, you yeah. should be proud because, you know, the Eurovision is what it is. And um, I mean, I know over the years it's changed into yeah. something else, but I think at the time with the expectations from and the pressure from the other winners and everything, I think you did very well. And the fact, you know, the song was such a success before you went, such a success on Eurostar, it had already done the job. You know what I mean? Yeah. Moving on to your, like, you know, you were with Sony and then coming to your first album. Was that a hard process then, you know, after Eurovision and then said, okay, okay I'm going to come out with the album and, yeah. you know, what songs will I use? Will I use my own songs? Or were they giving you songs as well? Say, hey, why don't you use this? How did you deal with all that? Uh, well, in fairness to Sony, they were very good, really, uh, in terms of um, the song selections and things like that. They gave me a, a good bit of, uh, you know, free free rope, as the man says. Um, I suppose uh, they want some of the songs from the show. Obviously, we've got the world having one the album. That was yeah. an old winner. And then they wanted a couple of songs from the show. And they said, like, from Eurostar. And Teenage Kicks was a very obvious one because it went down really well. 
And the island was another very obvious one, uh, just because of the sentiment and how it delivered, how the, re the reaction. And then after that, so I think we did those three, and then the other seven were original songs, six and a half. And one of them was a co-write. Maybe one or two of them were co-writes. But um, so I suppose I had half of the album, sort of, you know, 60% of the album was original, my own thing. So I was I was pretty happy with that, you know, that outcome of it. But wow. um, yeah, and little things like uh, I, I recorded Teenage Kicks, and I'm a huge big fan of the undertones. You know, I grew up listening to them. And uh, although they were a bit... Older than, you know, I, I would kind of miss the undertones. My brother was into them and a few friends that, that were in the band and stuff like that. And to get recorded, I remember the single, a friend of mine gave me the actual single that he bought, like Teenage Kicks, and I learned it by lifting the needle and going back and learning the words. You know, I mean, that was, that was back in the day. You don't even know what we're talking about now. Before the cassettes. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, you know with, the, with the record player and stuff. And... So to get recording Teenage Kicks and get the okay from John O'Neill, who wrote it, and kind of get the nod. And then he sent his brother, Damien, who was the original guitar player on on, on, on the Undertones. He was living in London because we'd done the album only. He came down. So they, I have the original guitar player from the Undertones playing on my version. And I'm just like, you know, you're start, sitting there sort of pinching yourself with these things. And um, so although I had to do a few covers, the other cover was um, Paul Brady's the island and i'm a huge fan of already so to do that you know and just get, get get to do it as well was just was really nice so um so those little things you know they, they weren't too hard to swallow the songs i think were just songs that i loved so i didn't mind and uh they were cool enough to let me do them i'm a big paul brady fan as well and it's funny because you know sometimes with my kids in, with paul brady in the car you know uh my daughter said you know she's been yeah. listening to him for years since she's a baby but she said to me there about a year or two ago she said you know dad all the singers you have like there's everything from metallica to the water boys to coldplay every kind of stuff and she said but paul brady that paul, that guy paul brady she doesn't really know much about him she said he has to be one of the best singers i've ever yeah. heard and i said well he is that's the that's the beauty of his voice because he, has, <laughs> he has this kind of diversity in his between the yeah. folk and the kind of yeah. rockier stuff. It's amazing. It's amazing. I just stumbled upon last night again. I was listening. I was going through before. I was listening to nothing but the same old story. It's probably one of my favorites. That song kind of changed my whole uh, view on songwriting. That was the song where everything changed for me, in my opinion, but in a way, in my head, anyway. And I heard him sing it with Donald Lonnie, and it's a live thing that they did in, um, oh, what's the pub on the Dublin Mountains? Oh, God, it's gone on in my head now. Um, Johnny Foxes. Johnny Foxes. And they done this live yeah. thing uh, back in the 90s, and or something like that, and it was himself and Donald Lonnie. And uh, I mean, it's amazing. And he's singing it, uh, I sing it in a particular in key manner, and he was singing it with the cap on, so he's up and all like, key above that and he's singing with such ease you know and it's so high i know i know how high it is because it's quite high to sing even though i know i'm a key guy so and it just it, it, it's completely natural there's no uh strain or stress it just it's a it's kind of a lilt nearly how he, he comes out today actually he has a, he has a the car and um yeah. i was listening to the homes of donegal and i you know obviously it has more or less the same melody as the lakes upon the train you know it's very similar the melodies but yeah, yeah. they're i mean two great songs in their own right and that's the kind of thing not many artists can have a song that sounds so much like another you know all artists have a certain song 
that sounds like it. But those are two big songs, but he still makes them sound different, even though it's such a similar melody. Yeah, he, uh, he has just a knack of, of doing his own thing, with, especially with, you know, folk songs and things like that, you know. That, uh, with with no, folk songs and stuff. No, no you, you, you've co-written a bit with Paul as well, haven't you? Yeah, I, I, we would uh, co-wrote a couple of tunes and we, re we released two singles together, uh, one under the guise of a band called the substitutes <laughs> and uh the substitute yeah. with a z the substitutes the yeah. and then the other one was a song that i wrote with them and an american guy three of us and uh i released it as part of the gathering it was part of it was kind of a i suppose a, a commission of such of sorts um oh yes yeah I remember so that. so uh yeah it was just i mean you know for me you know i think i have three that he's my top three so to get to work with one of those people and you know hang out with them for a while and you know record in a studio and just get a get a I wouldn't say get inside his head but just get a, an insight into how he works and how musical he is and how fast he is it's just it's an eye-opener and you know it's kind of like it's kind of the bar you know he, he, he really is and uh you just uh, yeah, when you're having a, you know, yeah. recently I had Eleanor McAvoy and she works with Paul as little as well. And she was talking about like that similar yeah. thing. He's, you know, he's great to work with. And he, as you said, he's, he's a high stander as well. And, and, you know, like when, when Bob yeah. Dylan lists, you know, Paul Brady is one of his favorite artists. You have to take notice, don't you? Yeah. There's so many, he's a real musician's musician, you know what I mean? Like as well. So there are so many great musicians out there when you mention his name you know their ears cock up oh yeah i know paul brady and there's just a yeah, the, huge he, amount he of respect not. you know and it's uh respect from the highest of quarters you know it doesn't come any higher really you know so yeah uh he's just yeah he's you know i always say he's our bob dylan but uh, i don't know but, he's but, our bob like, dylan yeah yeah for you like moving forward you know and you're going through all the albums and then you know did you kind of change your style or did you find a new style or like and to what what you have evolved into now do you think that was as a result of experience and getting older or you do you think you have evolved into what you always wanted to be with your songwriting now yeah i think i'm i'm where i'm, I'm close i'm never i think i found my real voice honestly about three years ago maybe four years ago that's the fact you know after 30 years or uh oh there uh, it is <laughs> yeah genuinely i think i find that place i don't know some people find it earlier i think i find it you know in the last few years really that place between it's between your head and your heart somewhere i don't know between your head and your soul and here and it's in somewhere I, I, and, and when you tap onto it, when you find it uh, i can't explain it but it took me a long time and i was always trying to explore and find and uh, some people do it naturally uh, you know you know if you take the the likes of paul paul Really, you know, people like that, these Bob Dylan's, and they they have this, they have their voice, and, and I I think I, I find my voice as as or developed. You know, I always always had my tones and stuff like that and things, that, but they're I'm very comfortable now. Let's say if I'm I'm, a, I'm the most comfortable I've ever been performing now, and I, I and that relationship between my song and my head and my heart and that place and the guitar it's it feels like one now and it, you know sometimes it, it used to in the, in the past it took me a while to get there but yeah I'm, I'm really happy where where i'm singing now you know where i'm performing and i can i think i feel the songs better i feel the vibe i feel the tempos and you know everything in that respect it's it fits a bit better you know i'm easier with it and i'm more i'm more at ease with it i'm more confident just about 
that these are my songs and this is what I do and I'm not making any apologies for it. If you like it, brilliant. If you don't, no. then that's okay too. You know, so that's what you have to, it's hard to find that sometimes it's hard to get to that point. Um, and it doesn't mean to say that you don't have shit nights and you don't have bad gigs. Of course you still do, but um, it just, it makes it, I think, easier. Explain to me your songwriting process. Like, do you kind of, do you get inspiration, you know, when you're not in the studio or not by the guitar and kind of rush home and write it? Or is it usually when you're kind of plucking or late nights just messing around the guitar? Where does the, the, the melodies and the words come from a lot of the time? The melody and the words have always come together for me. Um, normally, uh, sometimes I'll get maybe a line and then a melody from the head or I'll sit down with the line and um you know i get the melody out of the guitars and generally when i'm when with the guitar playing the guitar the melody and the lyric the line will come together and then the song builds in that way you know um so that's kind of my process it's different for every well different for uh different people have different processes or different ways of doing it some people write lyrics and go you know pick the music and some people have music and melodies and then they go and put the lyrics down on it and for me it's just they normally come together and then I'll like go back and refine the lyric or whatever or try and fig figure out what it is I'm trying to say. <laughs> and, and, uh, What's that song about? I don't know yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you just get a nice line, a nice chorus. You don't really know, but you know it's nice and say, oh, yeah, and then you kind of the subject matter comes out of it and you figure it out. But yeah, so that's kind of normally how it works for me, to be honest. Um, okay. Yeah. And is that in the studio? Like, for example, do you do a lot of pre-production and pre-writing kind of at home before you even go to the studio or do you find yeah. you write in the studio too? I never go to the studio unless I had something ready. I, I, just, I don't go to the studio to write. Yeah. yeah, I always write at home. and I'm able to record and, uh, a little bit at home so I have a little system that's, you know, it's very simple but it allows me to put down, you know, tracks and build songs and build ideas. So um, Derry Girl came about kind of like that because I had a lot of it done. You know, I figured out the tempo and the arrangement pretty much uh, from home. And then I sent the tracks to Tommy, who recorded in Attica, Tommy McLaughlin, who's a really good engineer and producer. Uh, he helped me with the song this time. And um, so we used that as a template that I had it down to click before I went. So he was able to use some of the stuff I'd sent and keep some of the things that we liked. And then we've got a drummer and drummed on top of it, basically. Um, uh, and it was Jay Dixon, the guy from Derry. I'd never used him before. He's really good, nice rock and steady. I loved it, loved his vibe. And Tommy did the rest, the guitars and bass. And I put down acoustics after that. So vocals, you know, and so, but the template was done at home. So um, I, I like doing that quite a bit because it gives me that bit of control to get to that line where I know, okay, the tempo, that's the same. Now, that doesn't mean to say it won't change when it gets in, but it's nice whenever you go down. They, There's nice production on the track, too. I was kind of, you know, being a musician, you listen to these details and yeah. you kind of look. and But it's nice. It's nicely produced, and <laughs> the instruments kind of don't kill each other. They all they're all balanced well, you know? Yeah, it's nice. It's, it's very guitar. So it's not really the typical kind of sound I, I, I go for normally, but it was just the song. The yeah. song sort of demanded it. <laughs> so, uh, and I knew when I'd written it that Tommy would be the guy to go to, and he's got a great studio and he did a great job so um i'm really happy with it you know um but yeah not the typical sort of sound but 
you know, I, I really enjoyed it. All guitar, it's very guitar based. Uh, and, um, you know, that might be a template kind of for the next album. You know, I'm not sure, but, we're, you know, I'd, I'd like to do explore that a bit more, you know. You know, obviously, when you were writing Derry Girl and, you know, the, the show Derry Girls and we have Galway Girl, two versions of it, and there's so many things. So was that, when you were writing it, was it something that you're kind of, it just all flowed out or are you kind of writing it thinking, oh, Jesus, I'm not far away from Derry and it's something I'm, you know, did you have any fears writing it and that title and everything? Yeah, I, I, I was, well, it was more of an ode to the Derry Girls show and so far as that, or to Lisa McGee who wrote it because I, I yeah. absolutely loved it because every character I, I knew, you know, <laughs> if you know what I mean, I knew somebody liked them or whatever. And I just thought she'd yeah. know that we used to be busting our sides in here laughing at it. She just really did. But what she did do was that she made it cool for to use those derryisms, those colloquialisms, whatever you call it, in a song that you could never have done before. I mean, yes. I couldn't have released that song and got the same reaction that I've got to it now because people wouldn't have got the joke, as it were. You know, they wouldn't have got the how's about you and catch yourself on. Right. Yeah. Get a grip, you know, all those things that they get in the day. So she, on. Yeah. All that lingo kind of made it cool. And it's nice you guys go to Germany or whatever, you go to America or whatever, chatting people and they'll be saying to you, Oh, you're from Ireland. Oh, right. Or, do you live anywhere near Derry? It used to be, you know, or do you live anywhere near Dublin? <laughs> so it's, it's, been, it's great. You know, yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the city has transformed, transformed so much and it's just a great vibe to go down to Derry now and hang around it and, you know, walk around it. It's such a positive place. To see what is common. Yeah, it's a lovely city. Yeah, and you know the show. You know, it's brilliant that they have this that this show now that and it allows you to allow me to sort of do those little things with it. And my granny's from Derry. And she gets a line in the song, so I knew all of those things. I studied music in Derry, and you know, I was there and I had a lot of friends, a lot of gigs over there. So, and the story I think was kind of brewing in me. The story is quite serious at the heart of it all. It's um, you know, it's really about in my head was you know about a. a a Protestant guy from the water side of Derry going across the bridge and meeting a girl from the city side, a, a Catholic, and, and, and having this relationship back in the day when it was very much so proud of prawn and actually very dangerous in some ways to do that. Um, um, and people play, paid with the ultimate price for doing that sometimes. You know, there was, you know, horror stories of that. But, but this is a story of, you know, a lot of people came through that and managed to navigate it. And this is a story of that, you know, that love will kind of conquer, you know, no matter what. And that's, it's uplifting and it's done in that vibe. But at the, at the core of it, it was, you know, it's a pretty, um, I suppose, serious subject in some ways. And uh, it's a little old to all those people that stuck it out and um, made it through those tumultuous times. And um, that's what it's like. It's, just, it's, it's supposed to be a, a celebration of that you know and that's how i see it and i'm passionate about that and passionate about the area you know it's another story of success of peace and how you you know the rewards of peace yeah i was just going to say there let's hope nobody in the future tries to rename because i always think you know all respect to ed sheeran and everything but i think it was a bit of a travesty when he brought out his galway girl and then the Galway girl we knew for years from Steve Earle, which was very famous. <laughs> now, when people say to me here in Spain, oh, Galway girl, yeah. you're from Galway. And I'm like, yeah, Galway girl, Ed Sheeran. And I'm like, no, no, Steve Earle. <laughs> I'm the Steve yeah. Earle one. <laughs> yeah. So it's funny how if you're yeah, a bigger I, artist, yeah. your yeah, the first song can get lost. 
But you know, uh, hopefully, no one does yeah. that to your side. No, absolutely. And listen, I, I, I think in some ways it's funny because um, I actually sang the original verse of Dolby Girl at my gigs in England, uh, do a little version of it. But yeah, I tell yeah. the story because it's, you know, this is the original Galway Girl. But funny enough, a lot of the people know it, the original one, because I think what's happened is that okay. the Ed Sheeran Galway Girl, people know that. And then, you know, the next thing that'll pop up is the actual Galway Girl song. So there's, yeah, so I yeah, think they're yeah. getting educated. And, you know, I could hear them doing the little day and sing along. Going like, this is okay. They yeah, know this. Yeah, so yeah. it's in the consciousness somehow. So maybe he, in some ways, then. Steve Earle a favor. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I'm sure they've had to come to some sort of yeah. agreement. I don't know financially. I'm not sure. But Even maybe if they didn't, uh, if it's if it's following up, if Steve Earle is coming up afterwards, it's benefiting him anyway. So who knows? You know. Exactly. So and uh, it's just yeah, yeah. You know, we're going to let you go in a second. I know you're pretty busy with uh, you've a lot of interviews and everything. So you might do a song for us, will you? Uh, well, indeed, yeah, absolutely, sure. I'll, 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 I'll give you a little bit of the Derry Girl if you can. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Okay, here it is, Derry Girl. We go for it. <laughs> I'll do a better one. Friday night, blues arrive. Eyes and by Gillette at the time. Take our chances, cross the bridge. Figure out what the difference is. I don't know what's the fuss. Why is it always down and dust? All I want's to have the crack. Not one step forward, two steps back. I'm blown. I'm blown as a dairy girl. She's alright. She's alright. Catch yourself on, get a grip. The dairy girls are on the rip. They don't take no prisoners, boys. Move over muckers, cause here comes the noise. Hearts of gold, pens of steel. Granny swear they're the real deal. I believe her, but she was too. The dairy girls threw it through my love. I'm in love with a very girl. She's alright. Yeah, she's on my mind. Oh,
Song, the catcher it gets. It's a really good song. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> I heard it the first time and I thought, actually, it's yes, very catchy. And now I've heard it three or four times just in the last few days, you know. And it's it's growing on me even more and more. It's a really good song. Well, very well written. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> it has a real vibe of like I used to love her. That kind of love story of the ages. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Really nice song, and and I think it's going to do really well, Mickey Joe. So listen, thanks very much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. We'd Thank love you. to have you on again sometime in the future. We'll talk some more about, you know, everything that's happening with you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And best of luck with everything and continued success. Thank you. Mickey Joe Hart, everybody. Thanks a million, Simon. And good luck and keep, the, keep up the good work. Thanks a million. Good luck. Thank you, Mickey Joe, for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And we look forward to having you on again in the future sometime. So best of luck with the new single and best of luck with the album when it eventually comes out. Okay, everybody, thank you very much for coming on and listening to this latest episode with me and Mickey Joe Hart. And we hope you've enjoyed it and we hope you've learned something that maybe you hadn't heard before. And if you're a big fan of Mickey Joe Hart, I think it's always a pleasure to hear from him. So we hope you've enjoyed it and we have lots of special guests coming in this season three. So stay tuned and stay positive and stay with us. You know, that's all we ask you to do. Thank you very much, everybody. My name is Simon Kay. This is the Collective Whisper podcast. Please like, share, subscribe, and we will see you in the next episode. Till then, take care of yourself, your family, and the people you love. All the best. Bye-bye.